Hello and welcome to the Farm Reform Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. My guest today is Jamika Hill, Senior Director of Clinical Trial Health Equity at Moderna. Jamika recently accepted Moderna's Delivering Inclusive Trials Award at the Reuters Pharma Europe 2022 event for the work they did on diversity, equity, and inclusion in their COVID-19 vaccine trials. I interviewed her for an upcoming deep dive feature on clinical trial diversity, and I really enjoyed the conversation, so I wanted to bring her on the podcast to share some of her insights and perspectives on this important topic with all of you. Welcome to the show, Jamika. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to, to talk about such an important topic. So to start, tell me a little bit about uh, the, the context for this, um, the the award that, that Moderna got and, and your approach to DEI during uh, your COVID vaccine trials. I think, you know, if we think back prior to COVID, um, Moderna was a, a younger organization. We were kind of coming out of our, our infancy. And we really had an opportunity um, not just to show up, um, but to show up in a way that was inclusive. Um, and so recognizing that um, diverse populations are, are truly underrepresented, um, we wanted to make a deliberate effort up front to work with our sites, to work um, with our communities in a way where uh, we would have adequate representation of, of people of all backgrounds. But the one thing we didn't know at the time was that, you know, barbershops, community events, things of that nature were obviously still still not open. Um, everyone was kind of on lockdown. And so um, some of the more traditional ways that we anticipated we'd be able to include people from all backgrounds just wasn't available. Um, and so as our phase three COVE study kind of evolved, we were able to see that we weren't actually achieving the diversity that we um, we actually needed and that we were committed to. And so as a result, we made the bold decision to slow our enrollment um, in order to ensure that there was enough time to enable people of all backgrounds and of diverse communities and populations to participate in our trial. Um, and as a result, we were able to achieve 37% persons of color, um, which is a huge feat for any organization, let alone one coming out of its infancy. Historically, we've seen around 2 to 6% persons of color participate in clinical trials. Um, and so certainly we're proud of that. Um, and that, that award was just kind of a recognition of the bold statement that Moderna made by um, slowing enrollment and kind of challenging the status quo to ensure that we had adequate representation of all people. Yeah, actually slowing down in that circumstance when, you know, the whole world was racing to get this vaccine out and you're to some extent racing against your your competitors. Uh, it really is a, a pretty big statement about the importance of that representation and that diversity. So tell me a little bit about why that's important to, to you personally and why it's important to, to Moderna. Yeah. Okay. This is such a great question. I mean, I'm very passionate about it personally and, and I think professionally. Um, so personally for 23 years, I've kind of been focused on um, marginalized communities and hard to reach communities and, and populations and ensuring that people are uh, understanding kind of our um, are really empowered with the awareness and education to make some decisions about their healthcare that are different and, and looking at clinical trials as kind of a healthcare option, if you will. Um, and so having an opportunity at Moderna to really, um, really live my values, uh, you know, externally was something that was really, really meaningful to me. I am a black woman um, and black uh, individuals as well as women have historically been underrepresented despite all the efforts that, you know, regulatory agencies around the globe have made to ensure that there is some equity there. 
Um, and so it's very personal to me. Um, and then I think, you know, the reality is that we're an aging population. Um, most people have mothers, sisters, aunties, things of that nature. Um, and so the people who have been marginalized are us. They're our family. They're our friends. And so um, it's really important to me personally that I'm a part of the change that I think is so necessary in the health system and, and in health equity. Um, and then at Moderna, um, I joined an organization that aligns with my values and their values are very much in that, you know, including underrepresented populations is really a vital step towards achieving health equity. Um, infectious diseases disproportionately affect certain ages, sexes, ethnicities, and geographies. And so thoughtfully tailoring our clinical trial methodology to these demographics um, is something that will hopefully pave the way for a change that we see throughout the industry. And we certainly saw that with COVID. Obviously, we, we saw that it did not affect all demographics equally. It was particularly hard on a lot of minority populations. Um, and that's one thing I want to ask about. You kind of mentioned, you know, there, there's a, a flexibility of the approach that was required, right? As this data came in, as we learned how this um, disease was affecting these different populations, uh, to make the trial representative, you needed to sort of um, adjust, as well as just adapting to, to, as you mentioned, certain modalities not being available, things not working. So tell me about how you foster that kind of flexibility in a field, the clinical trials, which is, is often known for its sort of like rigidity and, and adherence mm -hmm. to, to rules. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic question. Um, I think we rely heavily on um, selecting sites with inclusion in mind, right? Like we can't ask sites to enroll minorities in diverse populations if they actually are in a region that there's a diverse community around them. And so I think we first try and set our sites up for success and set ourselves up for success. Um, the other thing that we really try and be purposeful in is typically what happens in clinical trials is it's first come, first serve. Um, and that has historically always worked just fine. Um, although not everyone hears about clinical trials at the same rate or has the opportunity to, you know, stop what they're doing immediately and go into a clinical trial site for evaluation. And so one of the things we're really working with our sites on is um, taking a look at who their population is in the surrounding community and then making a deliberate and upfront effort to reach out to the community before the clinical trial is actually going. Because we also want to make sure this is inclusive. And it's not inclusive if you have people who are excited and have signed up and then you have to tell them, oh, sorry, um, that's not our goal. Our goal is to make sure that our clinical research sites are um, doing everything they can to build and foster trust in the community and allow those that have raised their hand an opportunity um, by giving them a little bit of time. Another thing I've heard as I've, as I've researched this topic is that often uh, diversity efforts can focus uh, too exclusively on recruitment um, as opposed to sort of the accessibility challenges of making sure you keep those participants in the trial and, and they're able to you know, participate fully and give you good data. Um, so tell me a little bit about that, that side of it for you guys. That's a, an absolute problem for sure. I think that, you know, historically we always hear that enrollment is the biggest barrier to clinical trial success, but you're absolutely right, Jonah. There's also another barrier and that's the attrition, right? And making sure that we have individuals who stay all the way through. And sometimes these trials are two years, you know, a year and a half and everyone has really busy lives. And so that's why, um, I think it's really important that we continue as an industry to really focus on some decentralized um, models and ways that we can actually 
um, allow for individuals to continue to live their daily life while participating because they're not having to travel two hours into, um, you know, a clinic visit, which to your point, it just creates a huge logistical barrier. Um, and so it's thoughtful trial designs where we really are incorporating all those things we found out during COVID are really uh, meaningful and, and they actually do work. I mean, I, I don't think that many people probably leverage telehealth until the pandemic. And now I think many people use it as, um, you know, a very valid way of communicating with their physician. So I definitely want to get into decentralization and telehealth. Um, let's put it on the back burner for just a moment because I want to want to make sure we really talk about this the this experience with the vaccine. Um, and and so my last question and and answer this how you see fit because I hate to ask people to um, talk critically about their competitors any more than they're comfortable. But how did you see Moderna's approach differing from uh, the other companies that were working on this same problem at this very sort of critical time? So, I mean, I want to applaud the industry first and foremost, right? I think that all of our um, partner pharma organizations uh, really have have honed in and wanted to try and make sure that we had adequate representation across um, all of the COVID vaccine trials and then moving forward. I would say the um, the upside or advantage that Moderna had that other organizations may not have is that we are nimble and we are able to pivot um, in the face of you know, new new data in the face of new realities as far as what's happening. And oftentimes when you get larger organizations that have been around for, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, you know, or longer, um, it's much more difficult for them to pivot or to change kind of the way that they're conducting clinical trials. At Moderna, we've really woven um, into the very fabric of our operating model, how we make sure that um, diverse representation, minority representation across the spectrum is included, um, not just on our COVID trial, but now on every one of our trials across the entire drug um, drug delivery system. So whether it's a phase one, whether it's a phase three, whether it's an infectious disease trial, whether it's an oncology trial, um, making sure that we're very thoughtful and upfront and that it's woven into the way we actually conduct trials gives us, I think, an advantage um, that oftentimes bigger um, organizations that have been here longer maybe don't have. That does make me think about measurability and accountability. Um, I know there's a lot more talk than there used to be about uh, diversity and, and equity, both in health in general, but especially in clinical trials. Um, and there's a, I, I mean, it's it's heartening to see how much of a priority it is in uh, companies' rhetoric, but I would love to, to start being able to see in the data, you know, what what percentage of trials actually are representative of their populations. And, and so it sounds like you guys are, are doing some of that work at, on your end to track. Um, and, and so I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. How do you, how do you approach yeah. measure, measurement and accountability? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we don't want to just be a talking head candidly, right? We want to be able to also hold ourselves accountable and the way we can, the only way we can hold ourselves accountable is to ensure that we have the digital tools to share where we started and where we currently are and where we want to get to. Um, and so Moderna has really invested a lot um, early on into our um, technology and our infrastructure. Um, and we also really believe um, wholeheartedly that we need to be transparent about kind of where we are and share our, our you know, ambitions and expectations with the sites in a way that allows transparency. So across the board, um, 
you you can't you can't know if you're ahead or behind in a game if no one's keeping score. And so we share digital dashboards with our sites um, in an effort to be very transparent around not only what we expect from them, but overall how well the study is doing. I think there's this notion that you know sites will only do the bare minimum, and we found just the opposite. When sites understand that we're behind based on the scientific imperative of enrolling the intended population, they are more than happy to kind of lift and see how they can help solve for the problem. Um, and so we really rely heavily on those digital tools in order to track. And as a result, um, in the past two years, we've been able to enroll 63,000 persons of color um, across 17 of our clinical trials from phase one to phase three. And those 63,000 individuals in our, our clinical trials, it comprises over 37% persons of color across the board. So we had some trials that were really high. In fact, we had um, a few trials that were encroaching on 60% persons of color, and we had to go similar to COVE and say, oh, you know, actually, we need to pull back because we need adequate representation, which means that we also need white participants. Um, White participants are critically important, and our effort, again, is to be inclusive. And so we had to balance that scale um, in the same way that we did with COVID. Um, but the transparency and the digital tools really allow for everyone to know, you know, what page we're on and really moves, you know, lockstep with one another. Yeah, I, I was just Googling. I was curious sort of in the U.S. population what those percentages look like. And it looks like it's it's pretty close, about 60% white. Obviously, it changes all the time, and there's a bunch of ways to count it. but. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, when it comes to infectious diseases, even though the general population is 60 percent white, um, certainly those that are most impacted by infectious diseases, which is one of the main areas Moderna focuses on, um, is certainly much higher than that. Um, we don't ever want to get to a place where we're enrolling, you know, all um, of any specific sub demographic. Right. We want to always be sure that there's balance because our goal is optimally to make sure that um, the vaccines and medicines that we bring forward are safe and effective for all people. I want to mention one more thing you alluded to earlier before we get into the decentralization conversation, um, which is you you kind of mentioned that clinical trial equity and health equity are are not two separate things because clinical trials are increasingly uh, care and, and they're a form of care that isn't available in any other way. So if you don't have access to clinical trial, you don't have access to, you know, top of the line care, basically. And that seems like an obvious point, but it to me feels like one that's worth making explicitly because it, in the conversation about clinical trial diversity, I think a lot of people are thinking about the science and they're, you know, they're thinking about the, the representation in the data, but there's this very real um, impact for the participants themselves. So I, I would love to just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a huge disparity when it comes to um, people who who even hear and access clinical trials. But a lot of that has, I mean, it's a, it's a mind shift, honestly, Jonah, right? Like when you think about clinical trials historically, people are like, oh, I don't want to participate in that. You know, it's, it's research, it's an experiment. Not understanding that while yes, you know, there's some elements that are, are variable and that we're, we're actually testing for. But in addition to that, you're going to get very close follow-up. And these are the very promising drugs that will then be in the pharmacy tomorrow. Um, and so I think when you start to kind of change the mindset of like, well, participating in a clinical trial actually enables me to be, um, to be the one first accessing the best potential of, of a medicine, 
and of our healthcare system. And in addition to that, I'm going to be able to be seen and monitored by the most well-renowned physicians um, out there, the key opinion leaders, you know, in the specific space. Um, I think that adds an assurance and um, a safety that people need, but oftentimes, to your point, is not talked about. And it's hard to talk about, you know, when you start to get into this idea of trust, um, it's hard to talk about without acknowledging that the mistrust is not unfounded, right? That we're still emerging from, you know, the specter of things like the Tuskegee experiment, uh, where where marginalized groups were really mistreated in the name of research. So trust has to be uh, built up and, and earned at this point. Yeah, it has to be. And we still have a long way to go there. I mean, candidly, a long, long way. Not only are we dealing with, you know, past racial, you know, um, atrocities at the hand of research, but we're also dealing with an age of social media, right, where there is disinformation um, that only adds to speculation and, you know, distrust out there. But then in addition to that, we have a lack of uh, physicians of color that conduct research. And it doesn't matter how valid the information is. If the person you're receiving the information from, you don't actually trust, you know, it's, it's not a value. And so I think we really, as an industry, need to do a much better job of ensuring that we have an investigative pool that includes an enormously, a much bigger amount of physicians of color. Um, it's very difficult when you think that, you know, m- there's been lots of data out there that suggests that persons of color and people of color really prefer to be seen by someone who looks like them. Um, And if someone who looks like them is not actually the one saying, you know, I think this would be a great idea for you to participate. Let me explain, you know, the potential risks and the potential benefits and trust. I'm going to be here every step of the way as we kind of move through this. I think it's understandable to think why people would still have a lot of, uh, of distrust and mistrust and, and, Candidly, they're scared, right? Their safety is at risk. Yeah. But of course, the irony there is that they, it might be their best chance. They might be more safe in the yeah. trial than not. That's exemplary. So let's talk about the tech piece. Um, at first, I was sort of operating on the assumption that these were two different trends that were hitting clinical trials at the same time. And I think I said as much to you in our last interview. The more interviews I do, the more they seem to be so intertwined that you almost can't make a distinction between clinical trial diversity and and you know decentralization and virtualization which is interesting because it, the virtualization story starts much earlier in well i i should say that the they they didn't start as as being together but the fact that they both became so important during covid has really um it's it's sort of one story so so help help uh parse that out for me. How do you think about decentralization um, as as a part of your charge to to focus on clinical trial equity? I think it's like a mom and a dad or like like two parents, actually, I should say, um, where it's optimal to have them both at the same time working towards the same goal. Um, Because the reality is that when you look at a lot of the decentralized um, methodologies and tools available, it actually helps increase access and extend access um, into communities, neighborhoods, and regions that otherwise just wouldn't have access to participate. Um, and oftentimes those, those regions and those communities and neighborhoods um, also include um, individuals of color, women, um, lower socioeconomic um, or, you know, very rural places. And so I think it's really, you know, they're working in tandem. And I think that 
as an as an industry, we've really you know started to see that um, there's value in partnering kind of our efforts um, with some of the, the decentralized models in order to ensure that we have diverse representation. Um, I think of older adults oftentimes, you know, how we thought about technology with older adults prior to the pandemic. And there was a lot of skepticism around, well, telehealth might not work. You know, a lot of older adults might not be as technologically savvy as some of the younger um, generations. And so this isn't a viable tool and they feel more comfortable actually going in. Um, And during COVID, we just found that that's not the case. And we continue to find that that's not the case, Um, that allowing for additional ways in order to reach um, and kind of have dialogue with your physician is actually embraced, not just by the younger generation, but also by older adults. I mean, when you talk about access, we're we're talking about so many different things, but but one of them is is like, you know, not just like do, do you have a car to drive to the site or or you know does it you have to take the bus and it takes a long time, but also like can you get away from your job to go these things like all of that stuff that decentralization doesn't solve, but it it certainly sort of like reduces some of the barriers, right? I mean, I haven't gotten my eyes checked in I don't know four years since I had my kids and I was in Moderna and I saw a mobile van that had an ophthalmology clinic. And I went in during my lunch and I got my eyes checked and I was like, this is exactly what Moderna is doing with clinical research, right? We're trying to work with partners who also have mobile vans. And I think the industry as a whole, right, is trying to see how can we bring the opportunity to to people as opposed to, you know, thinking people even have the time to do it, right? Like, um, even if you have the resources, do you have the time, you know, to actually go out and put yourself as a priority um, in a situation where it's not dire, right? I think, you know, obviously when we think about rare diseases and sometimes oncology, well, a lot of times oncology, um, clinical trials are front and center because they might be the most viable option. But when you think about infectious diseases or you think about chronic ambulatory, um, high blood pressure, cholesterol, things like that, um, oftentimes people don't put themselves first because it would take effort and that effort requires that they then take time away from somebody else that they're serving or that they love. And so I think the decentralized model allows for people also to prioritize their own health without sacrificing the needs of those they care about. As we start to think about trials as care, uh, the other question that I think that brings up is, is the data being shared the way it needs to be shared, right? And and uh, someone I spoke to recently for my story mentioned she, she was actually in a COVID trial and the researchers wouldn't tell her the results of her COVID tests. So, yeah. so she had to do a COVID test for Pfizer and then she had to go drive through CVS to do one so she could see if she had COVID for herself. Um, so there's this real siloing of, of data when it comes to trials, especially for pharma companies, it comes from a, a reasonable place of data propriety and, and things like that. But how do you think about that? And how do you see that kind of shaping up in the future as we move in in this direction of, of thinking about trials as as part of care? I think it's, it's, it's critical. I mean, data return is something that as a whole, we are all struggling with. I don't know that any one company kind of has a solution for it, but I know it's something that we're all striving to to figure out ways where we can deliver the return data, your personal data to you um, so that you're also aware of what's happening in your own body, right? Like that's that's critically important. We just have to balance that with also not unblinding the trial and things of that nature that are critical to achieving the endpoints and making sure that our trials are fair um, 
and, and just in that way. And so I don't have the answer, Jonah, but I know that it's something that is critically important. And I hope as an industry, we continue to, to get better at. I mean, transparency is important at all levels. And certainly if you're you know, going to take a step forward and say, yes, I'd like to participate in research, I think that we have... Um, you know, a duty to make sure that we're actually providing that data back to the participants in a way that maybe doesn't unwind the data, but certainly provides them with the health information that is theirs and that they they deserve. And, and that kind of takes us into to what I see as the third trend impacting clinical trials, right? There's this increased in, uh, focus on diversity. There's these new technologies for, for conducting trials, a decentral, decentralized, virtualized, not the same thing, but very related. Um, and then there's this notion that maybe we can get past the placebo, right? That like there doesn't have to be a group of people that isn't getting care in order to do a good trial because we have so much data about what people are like when they're not sick and we can use it to make models and then we can use AI. And um, it's, it's exciting stuff. And it does really, it makes me think like all in all, like, clinical trials are just going to change so much. We're not going to recognize them in five years. <laughs> what do you I think totally about agree. all that? No, I totally agree. I've been in here in the industry for 23 years and I still am like, it seems like things have moved slowly when it comes to health equity, but then we get these little boluses where it seems like we do huge paradigm shifts. And I think that absolutely is an area that in the next five years, we just won't recognize it. I mean, the notion that you can use real world data um, instead of having people take a placebo and not having any potential benefit, I think is a huge game changer. I also think it will go a long way to help build trust um, because the reality is that everyone enters a clinical trial hoping and thinking that they're going to um, be on the, the um, positive end and uh, of what they receive, right? And that they're actually going to get the, the trial or study drug um, that it's always a disappointment when the individual does receive the placebo. And so I think if we can leverage real world data in a way that um, also doesn't include bias, I think we'll be able to make huge headways um, in the clinical research space. That was an interesting, reminds me of an interesting thing I heard at JP Morgan about the FDA and, and they did a, a pre-approval on something and they said, okay, we're going to, this is so promising. We want people to be able to get it. So we're going to let you put it in the market, but you have to conduct your phase three after the fact. And the problem is, who's going to sign up for that trial? When you could have a 100% chance of getting the drug, why would you take a 50% chance of getting the drug? Yeah, I mean, we still have that challenge a little bit, candidly, with COVID, right? I mean, there's COVID is still very, very real. And there's um, variants and things of that nature that we're still um, researching. And I think there's always going to be individuals who are interested in giving back in the name of science. And so I think, you know, still honoring those individuals um, is going to be a huge part of clinical research. Um, but I think also a way that we can extend research opportunities to more people is by doing exactly that, right? If the data is promising enough where it can be entered and, and approved um, to allow people to benefit from it. Um, not all trials will run at the speed of COVID trials and get approval in the, the time COVID trials did. And so um, I think that, you know, that can be a win so long as we also kind of measure against real world data and make sure that we're still monitoring for adverse events and things of that sort. Because the goal really of clinical trials is to make sure it's safe and effective before it gets to the wider population. And if we're going to be using the wider population to assess whether or not it's safe and effective, um, you know, we just want to balance that and make sure that we're ethical towards people. Yeah, it's tricky. They, they, they're not easy answers, right? Yeah, they sure are not. 
So we have really covered a lot, and this has been a, a fascinating conversation. And clinical trials are rapidly becoming one of my favorite topics in pharma. It's just so much there. Uh, but what haven't we talked about? What, what's on your mind, uh, or, or what would you love to kind of share with some of your peers or, or folks in pharma who are maybe not on the R&D side uh, about the work that you do? That's such a great question. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to trust, trust really is when rubber meets the road. And we can do a whole lot um, as far as clinical research to make sure that we have equity and that we have diverse representations across the spectrum. But if then when a product is available, it doesn't get to the intended population, um, we're still back at square one, right? Like all of the efforts that we've invested um, in trying to make sure that we have adequate data, um, we still have that, but it's not now going to the population that needs it most. And so I think really, um, it's incumbent on all of us in the industry to really work with community leaders and community organizations in order to make sure that we have a steady drumbeat of um, a presence in the community, because the reality is that clinical trials can be transactional. You're here today and you're gone in six months or gone in a year once enrollment and, and retention is over. And so how do we make sure that the notion that we actually care about the communities we're trying to serve remains? And I think that overall, as an industry, we have to get way better at really partnering with community organizations and community leaders. Um, and then once we're, we have a product, really focusing to make sure that that product gets to those intended people who we've just done um, a huge effort to make sure are included in our research. Well, thank you so much, Jamika. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you about this, and I hope we can have you on again sometime. It would be my pleasure. Thanks so much, Jenna. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.